Turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark this morning, chapter 14. Read of Jesus' trial and uh, Peter uh, there as well. This is God's holy, infallible word. So listen carefully as it's read. Begin in verse 53 through the end of the chapter here. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand, neither understand, uh, neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. And our reading there. As I mentioned before in our study of Mark, uh, tradition and also scholarship uh, generally regards that, that it's likely Mark's gospel is a recording of Peter's account of these events. And there's a number of reasons for that uh, that, that I won't go into uh, again. Uh, but in light of that likely probability, it's fascinating, I think, to read, along with Mark's gospel, Peter's letters uh, later in the New Testament. Um, and wonder what, what Peter might have been thinking about and contrast it with what we see in the Gospels. For example, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's, he's encouraging his readers to rejoice in the grace of God, to live in the grace of God. He says, for this, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to suppose Peter might have been thinking of this incident that we read 
here and the great contrast between himself and Jesus there who did not have deceit in his mouth, uh, who was not speaking lies, who was entrusting himself to the Father as a great example to Peter who is terrified and, and acting differently. Peter says he, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Peter no doubt recalls his own straying uh, on, on that night included, and his shepherd graciously bringing him back over and over. Uh, the, the theme we could argue of this whole section that we've read this morning is witnessing. Uh, Jesus is called to witness to himself. There are false witnesses called forward, and then uh, Peter has a trial of sorts uh, of his own as well, uh, though he fails in it. Um, because of what Jesus has done for you, you also are called as witnesses uh, for Jesus in your life. Uh, but also because of what he's done for you, he gives you infinite grace when you fail uh, in that uh, and calls you back to himself over and over. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. Uh, consider first just the, the scene here, the setting um, looking at number one in your outline there, uh, we're told in, in verse 53 again that um, Jesus is led away to the high priests, uh, to the high priest, um, and all the chief priests, elders, and the scribes are gathered. So the, the, again, those are the three groups that make up the Sanhedrin. Uh, this is the Sanhedrin that Jesus comes before here, the, the Jewish ruling body. Um, at the home of the, the compound of the high priest, and it, it would have been as a the home of a wealthier person, um, a square or, or U-shaped home with a courtyard in the middle. And this is where we find Peter, a courtyard that likely was not bigger than this, this room, uh, perhaps, here. Um, Caiaphas is the high priest. His house uh, is believed to be, uh, the, the place it is, is, is believed to be less than a mile from Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested. Um, uh, today, interestingly, on, on this traditional site, there is a church, as is true of many of these um, traditional sites in the Middle East, a, a church was established. There is a church of Peter there, um, and it's, it was built almost a thousand years ago, um, and before that there was a shrine for many, many years on this, this traditional spot. Uh, the church that's there today still has a, a golden rooster on the top uh, commemorating what, what happened here with, with Peter. Um, modern excavation of this site has has dug up uh, cisterns and grottos right under it, which, which would have been traditional and perfect like holding cells for prisoners being held for questioning, which is exactly what Jesus experiences. Uh, there's a, a Christian writer in the 4th century, in the 300s, who uh, mentions this site and says that the pillars to which Jesus was tied and beaten uh, were still there, the same pillars in, in his day. So, uh, anyways, it, it, you, you can visit this, this traditional site today. But we're told in verse 40, 54 uh, that Peter, in fact, is following at a distance. So last time we considered this chapter, we saw all the disciples, all of them left. They fled Jesus. But now we find out that Peter has come back, at least at some distance, to see what's happening. And uh, in, in John chapter 18, we read, in fact, that it's not just Peter. Right? John is there as well. So John and Peter follow at a distance, and come to the high priest's house. And, in fact, John, we're told, is known to the high priest, he says, and they let him in to the courtyard. 
And John goes and talks to the guard, and then they let Peter in. So this is how Peter gets in um, with John, because John knows the people there somehow. We don't know what that relationship was or, or how. But um, again, as we consider Peter this morning, I, I want us to remember and uh, remember he's a complex character in, in his motives and his actions. Uh, we don't want to be too simplistic um, as, as we praise him or criticize him. We've noted and we will note his cowardice, his abandonment, his lack of faith. Uh, but there's also certainly some boldness in Jesus' following and coming into the courtyard of the high priest here. Although we, at the same time, we don't want to overstate that because John was let in fully recognized and it didn't seem to be a problem for him. Um, but Peter is marked by boldness other times, right? Just, just very shortly before in, in the garden, he'd drawn his sword against a Roman cohort, right? And, and begun attacking. Um, and, and we'll see that boldness uh, even after the resurrection uh, as well. So we leave Peter in the courtyard of this, this you know, square house or compound uh, sitting by the fire. Uh, very close by was Jesus be- before the Sanhedrin. So again, this was not a huge area. I mean, picture the, the wall right here. Jesus was right behind that wall uh, meeting with the Sanhedrin. Um, so we'll turn to consider Jesus' trial then. Uh, next, in a number two on your outline, uh, which was nothing less than uh, the further humiliation of the Son of God. So he's before the, the Sanhedrin. This, the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 members. I, I don't know what the origin of that number is. Uh, by Jewish law, 23 of them had to make up what we would call a quorum uh, to decide a capital case to, you know, to sentence someone to death. Um, it's not clear whether that was met, but, but as has been pointed out many times in history, there were many, um, many clear violations of Jewish law in this trial. Um, for one, capital cases required another meeting the following day, 24 hours later. Uh, so you couldn't just convene a quick meeting, make a quick decision to kill someone, go through with it. It had to be announced and thought through and confirmed the following day. That doesn't happen. Uh, all such meetings had to be during the day. Uh, this is during the night. Uh, capital cases could never be held on the Sabbath or on a festival day or on the eve of one of those days. And uh, the Jewish, because of the Jewish accounting of days, now it's nighttime, this is the eve of the Sabbath. Um, the death sentence could not be announced until the following day. Uh, so again, 24 hours a, a day to a day. Um, and, and there are several other violations as well. And on top of that, maybe the most obvious uh, is they're calling false witnesses, um, uh, consciously calling false witnesses, even though we find the Sanhedrin unwilling to use contradictory testimony. That's probably just so that they have a, a case that they can bring to Pilate um, and, and to the public uh, that looks better for their, for their side. Um, anyway, this, the, the Sanhedrin has already decided uh, that they want Jesus dead, and they're going to get that outcome however necessary. Uh, we, for verse 55, the chief priests, the whole council, kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And that, that continues through this, this account. Another thing that all the Gospels uh, record about Jesus' trials, and he really has two trials, a, this ecclesiastical trial, if you will, before the Sanhedrin, and then a, a civil trial before Pilate and, and Antipas. Um, but they all record Jesus' silence. 
they all record his silence. In here in verse 60, read, The high priest stood up, came forward to question Jesus. You do not answer. What is it these men are testifying against you? And, and we, that continues with Jesus before Pilate. Uh, he doesn't answer uh, at least certain things. And we might wonder why. Why is Jesus silent now? Why doesn't he plead his case? Why doesn't he explain, I'm, I'm being misunderstood. These, these people are misquoting me. Uh, well, we can't know for sure, but we can, we can guess at least that Jesus refuses to incriminate himself in this sham trial. Uh, he refuses to engage with false witnesses who have, and judges who have no interest in, in knowing the truth. Um, and he knows they've made up their minds long ago. But Jesus certainly is also simply willingly giving himself in the will of the Father. Right? He's not trying to escape what he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are doing for sinners. And he's going to an unjust death. Uh, he's fulfilling perfectly what the prophet Isaiah prophesied about him. I give my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Later, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He wasn't fighting against the will of God, the timing of God. Uh, he was a willing sacrifice. He didn't resist the Father's will. Uh, he entrusted himself completely, as, as Peter writes later. But the, the, the high priest here gets uh, fed up with this and comes up with a charge himself here in verse 61. Uh, one that's at the heart of the matter. Saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And here Jesus responds, verse 62, I am. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, why does Jesus answer now? Why does he speak here? Well, probably because now this is a true statement, right? There's all kinds of false witnesses and twistings of his words and, and things he hadn't said or done. This is a true statement, that he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, which is to say the Son of God. Um, it, it's interesting, though, Jesus himself has not um, much and openly spoken of himself as the Son of God to this point in the Gospels. Uh, it's not a title that he's used for himself along with Messiah. He hasn't used that title. He's made it clear that this is who he is, especially to his disciples. His disciples clearly understand this is who he understands himself to be. Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, but, but he hasn't pro proclaimed that himself much. But here he affirms that statement in the language of, of Daniel 7, coming on the clouds. That's, that's the language of God uh, ruling and judging. In, in the language of Psalm 10, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over his enemies until they're all defeated. And so... And we might wonder, why, why here now does he clearly affirm that he's son of God, that he is the Messiah? Well, he, he's again been avoiding misunderstanding of his person and his mission um, because of all the connotations around son of God and, and Messiah as someone who is uh, going to come in and set up an earthly kingdom and defeat the Romans and, and all of that. And as one writer puts it, only here in the light of suffering, can Jesus openly divulge his identity as God's son? Uh, now Jesus can be seen as what kind of Messiah he is, that he has to suffer and die. Uh, he, he's, he's going to this end the, the very next day. Well, the response of the, the high priest in verse 63, he tears his clothes, um, 
You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And, and they all feel justified then in beating him and taunting him. Uh, prophesy. The, the other gospels account are a little longer. The, the point of prophesy is they blindfolded him and struck him and say, prophesy, who hit you? Uh, taunting him. And here's an important question about this scene then. Uh, what, what triggered the charge of obvious blasphemy? Well, why does the high priest suddenly jump back and say, there it is. You know, send the witnesses home. We don't, we don't need any testimony. Uh, he's made it clear himself. He's deserving of death. What, what, what triggered that charge of blasphemy? It, it's often, often understood um, or often thought that it's Jesus' claim to be Messiah. He's clearly said he's the Messiah. Uh, there, was no, there, there was nothing illegal about claiming to be the Messiah. There were people before Jesus and after Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah and gained large followings. They were never brought under charges. Um, that wasn't a crime under Jewish law. Uh, blasphemy was nothing less than, than either defying or cursing God's name uh, directly uh, or, as one writer puts it, the audacity to ascribe God's honor to oneself or to equate yourself with God. That's what triggered the charge of blasphemy. Not that he thought he was the Messiah, but his claim to be the Son of God, his claim to be divine. And this, this is exactly who Jesus is and claims to be, the Son of God. God himself. Uh, come to save sinners, now raise, risen as, as king of the world and coming again to judge. It just reminds us that the identity of Jesus is central to Christianity. The identity of Jesus. The, the crucial question about Jesus that confronts all people is not whether Jesus existed historically. I mean, that's important, but it's really not disputed, um, even outside the church. It's not whether he was a good teacher whether he was humble or, or whether he uh, taught a moral code or things like this, th- these are true. But, but the crucial question, the central question is, is Jesus who he said he is? Is he who he says he is? Is he your God? Is he your Lord and Savior? That, that's the question we all need to answer. Because either Jesus was not who he says he was, he was a, a liar or he was a lunatic, And so he's not actually a good example or a good teacher, or he is who he claimed to be as the Son of God. Before we move on then, just try to comprehend then what what humiliation this is for Jesus. The Son of God submitting to a a sham trial, not only by by sinful creatures of his, but, but ones acting in blatant rebellion and wickedness against their creator and Lord, mocking him, beating him. I was, I was kind of working on an illustration of the absurdity of that, and I gave up. I, I don't think there's any way from our experience to draw a parallel to the absurdity of the Son of God being treated this way uh, for the sake of sinful, rebellious people uh, like us. Uh, secondly, I, I want you, uh, under the other... Um, Subpoint there, I want you to note a couple other things about this scene. One, one is just the way this is full of ironies um, and how that adds to our understanding of Jesus' suffering, that he knew these ironies. For example, the, the Sanhedrin sits as judge of a lawbreaker here um, while they break the law and Jesus is innocent. 
Um, or the fact that the, the evidence they strenuously seek uh, in the end is just provided simply by Jesus himself. Um, or the fact that Sanhedrin mocks Jesus' ability to prophesy, but all of his prophecies come true. Um, it's actually the high priest and all with him who blaspheme because Jesus is the Son of God. Or the fact that the high priest stands here in judgment of Jesus, but the high priest will stand himself before the judgment seat of Jesus one day when he returns in glory. There are all these ironies. Another notable thing that I want you to see, and I, I owe this insight to William Hendrickson, uh, is just how fearful Jesus' uh, accusers and abusers are throughout the gospel accounts, particularly around his death. Uh, in John chapter 11, the, the Jewish leaders are first plotting there in John's gospel to, to get him and kill him. And they say, we can't do it now. The, the Romans may come. They're fearful about how their plan's going to go out. And, and Mark 14, they, they say, the people may riot. We can't do it this way. We can't do it now. Matthew 27, after Jesus' death, the, they, they secure the tomb, saying the disciples might come by night and steal the body. And this would... This would mess things up. And, and everywhere, and again and again, his enemies are terrified that their plans are going to unravel. And that, that they're always threatened. That carries on into the book of Acts. And Peter and John are, are preaching. And they say, this must not spread any further. This is bad. They're fearful again. And in contrast to all of that is Jesus' quiet, firm resolve and confidence not only in this scene, but through this whole week in, in Jerusalem, leading up to his death. If anything, it would seem that it's, it's Jesus' life, it's Jesus' plans that are unraveling. But, but again, Hendrickson puts it this way, it's a call to see Jesus' majestic calm. It is he who is the real victor. It is he who is fully at rest here. It is he who imparts rest to all who repose their trust in him. This helps us to see and understand Jesus' commands in the Gospels to not fear to his people. Do not fear. Because your majestically calm and in control and compassionate Lord is with you. And, and no doubt this is why Peter looked back at this in, in writing 1 Peter. In writing 1 Peter chapter 2, wrote about the example that Jesus gave in how he suffered. Uh, your with our majestically calm Savior, we are not to fear. Uh, we can lament. Uh, we can grieve over certain threats in our society or bad legislation and leaders or treatment of others, but we do not fear these things, right? Jesus is victorious and, and has a vice grip on the course of history. Let's consider thirdly then Peter's trial and, and first his failed witness. Look at verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. So sitting in the light of the fire, Peter is, is recognized somehow by this servant girl. And that leads him to his first denial. Quickly, in, in verse 68, he, there, there's an escalation to these denials. And he first tries just a, a quick brush off. Right? I don't know what you're talking about, is basically what he says and walks away. I, I don't know what you mean. He walks out to the porch, it says. Well, then the girl, after a while, brings other witnesses into her pressing of Peter here in verse 69. Um, 
and says, this, this is one of them. And Peter now has to answer all these people. And, and in verse 70, uh, it simply says, but he denied, he again denied it. Um, and the, if you're a grammar nut, the, the imperfect tense there, um, it's not the past perfect tense, but it's the imperfect tense. There's, there's an ongoingness to the verb there. He's, he was denying it. Uh, this is an extended denial now. Um, he kept denying it. It could be translated. Um, an escalation. Uh, one, one commentator says in our language we might uh, say something like Peter went off now, denying this, this charge. But Peter still can't escape it in verse 70. Uh, verse 70 goes on, after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean too. Now he's recognized also as, as a Galilean, which seems to confirm to those around him his identity with Jesus. And he's, he's had to talk so much now in defending himself. They, it's, it's his accent, Matthew 26 tells us, that they recognize. Um, just like you might hear someone say, oh, you're from Louisiana, right, or from Minnesota, or Boston. Okay, um, and, and this is how Peter's recognized even further. And now Peter's escalating denials continue with this crescendo in verse 71, but he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you're talking about. So Jesus, in his, in his testimony, right behind the, other, the wall there, calmly swears that he is the Son of God. And, and Peter, in his... On the other side of the wall, swears with a mouthful of emphatic and angry curses that he doesn't know Jesus, that he wants nothing to do with him. Again, it's hard to, hard to know exactly what pushed Peter um, to this emphatic denial or what he was facing here. Again, John entered the court here because he was known to the high priest. John is later at the cross. These things didn't seem to be a danger to John. Uh, Peter wasn't under formal questioning here. Peter wasn't uh, in a trial with the Sanhedrin. Uh, he was talking with a servant girl around the fire. Um, he would go on to be one of, the, one of the boldest, one of the most important witnesses for Christ in history, of course. But, but here he failed miserably in this informal interaction with, with the servant girl and others. We're reminded, as, as one writer puts it, that faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed in simple and ordinary actions and words. Uh, Paul writes of Christians as ambassadors for Christ. Uh, he's redeemed you. Uh, he's made you a kingdom of priests. He's given you an inheritance, eternal life. He simply calls you to live for him, to tell others of his grace. Until that day when you get to experience the, the fullness of his rescuing grace and rest. You and I may never be uh, called to testify in some grand setting in a trial or something like that. But you and I are called to testify to Jesus constantly. Even if not explicitly um, in, in words talking about Jesus all the time, but constantly. You're called to testify to your kids, to your grandkids. Maybe especially when they're frustrating you or when they're struggling with something and you can point them to Christ. You're called to testify to Christ when you're caught off in traffic or when you're interacting with a difficult person at work or experience some injustice or evil. 
You testify to Christ when it comes to the excellence with which you do your work. Or, or how you vote, or you pay your taxes, or love your neighbors. That's our privilege as it was Peter's. But, but Peter lost sight of Jesus for a time here in the courtyard. He's thinking of himself. And when, when you and I lose sight of Jesus and what life is about, who you are, uh, we deny Jesus, essentially, in our angry, prideful, selfish, indulgent choices that we make. And so we need reminders of the final verse, looking at, at, at letter B there in your outline. This, this scene, surely, of, of Peter's denier, is, is surely the height of Jesus' aloneness uh, and abandonment in, in one sense, in terms of his, his human friends, at least. Um, the disciples not only run away in fear, but now the, the most outspoken and committed of his disciples, one of his inner circle, is, is now willing to rain down curses in disowning him. And at this point, we might expect Jesus to decide, well, you know, Peter, you obviously have no place in my kingdom, um, in my plans. You, you've made your choice, Peter. Right? But that's not what we find. The, the grace of God and hope break through in powerful a powerful way in the final verse of this very sad story. Look at verse 72. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Why the rooster? Why the rooster? Well, it, I don't know why a rooster specifically, but it was the rooster is a great grace of Jesus to Peter. It was a gift of his grace to Peter that he, that he, in essence, gave to Peter ahead of time. Something to trigger Peter's repentance when the time came. To jog his memory, to, to bring his eyes back to Jesus. Think of what must have come flooding back to Peter when, when he heard the rooster and, and sort of came back to his senses. Jesus' tender love for him and, and how many times in ways Jesus has been gracious to him. Right, Peter's bold boast, just like an hour before, to die for Jesus no matter what. He remembers Jesus' gracious warnings to him. Multiple warnings the previous night, the previous day. He remembers his, his own love for Jesus. And, and Luke adds a, uh, an incredible piece, Luke 22, to this, this scene. Right, right exactly this moment, Luke 22 says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Remember how close Jesus was, just, you know, just behind a wall there. Um, he, and, and Jesus looks out a window or looks out an open door, something like that. And, and the look of Jesus is not described there in, in Luke 22. Um, but I think we can guess it was not a look of bitterness or disgust or hatred. It, Peter must have seen in Jesus' eyes compassion and, and loving reminder of Peter. This also reminds us that the Bible and, and Christianity do not hesitate in being honest about the, the failures and the weaknesses of the men and women in its story. All of them. And this, this is a great contrast to other world religions. This is not how Muhammad is presented. Muhammad is a, a perfect, untainted hero. right? This is not the, the prophets and apostles and, and other characters of the Bible. They are a mess. 
because the Bible is a story about God. It's a story of God's grace. Paul came to understand this in Romans 5. He writes, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The story is not where where trouble increased, the the heroes got it together and stepped up. No, grace increased all the more. This is a powerful uh, example of that. Jesus looked at Peter in that moment, no doubt said, Peter, I've, I've loved you, and I will still love you, despite what I just heard you say. Jesus would not let Peter go. Peter already belonged to Jesus. Right? Even in his very stumbling and imperfect faith. I remember a time when I was walking along with one of my kids, and they were really little, I think Owen, and um, he was walking on a, a retaining wall next to me and uh, insisted at some point that he take his hand out of my hand. Right? He wanted to do it himself. And for whatever reason, I said okay, but immediately uh, grabbed the, you know, the loose part of his shirt behind him and, and kept walking right with him. And then so he wasn't aware of my hand firmly gripping his shirt, but, and, and he was maybe able to stumble, but I wasn't going to keep him, I wasn't going to let him you know, be seriously harmed or fall off the wall. Well, Peter was restored later because Jesus kept hold of him right, all the time. Even though Peter had taken his focus off of Jesus. And so here, Jesus grants Peter the grace of repentance. He grants Peter the grace of repentance. The, the last line in this story and then about Peter weeping, and then the story just goes on. It's, it's not simply a tragic ending to this part of the story. That The other gospel writers tell us he wept bitterly, is how they describe it. But, but there's hope in that, that bitter weeping. It's a kindness to Peter that he would see in the, faith of, in the face, literally in the face of Jesus' faithfulness, uh, his own sin, and, and turn back to Jesus. And God does the same for you and for me. Uh, he calls you to live and to witness for him. Uh, Jesus was there before the Sanhedrin uh, for you, for Peter, taking in himself all the shame and judgment that he and you and I deserve, that Peter and you and I deserve. And, and Jesus would the next day die. Uh, Jesus would die under the wrath of God for Peter's sin, for your sin, for my sin that we deserve. Um, so that there is no faithlessness, there's no failure on your part that can unearn his his faithfulness and his love. Because it's a gift. It's all of grace. This is why, why Jesus could give Peter his grace immediately after all of this. He earned your salvation for you. And along the way, he grants to you the grace of repentance. To return to that life that he's purchased for you. Uh, when you fail in your witness, when you fail in living for Christ... Uh, He sends roosters, if you will, does he not? Uh, He sends glances through the doorway, if you will, to say, HP, I've I've redeemed you from that filth. Why are you acting in in that pride? Why are you looking for satisfaction in that? Why are you forgetting who you are? As a, a, a miserable sinner, become a child of God. God sends those those prompts. Through his word. 
right? As we read, as we hear his word, and what is true and good and beautiful. He sends those prompts through our conscience, which doesn't always function perfectly, but, but, but functions to point us back to who we are in Christ. He sends those prompts through friends, right? Who point out to your sin, your pride, your lack of witness. And I want to urge you not to ignore those prompts of the Holy Spirit. Just think of the fact that the only reason that Peter saw the look of Jesus is because Peter had turned his eyes back to Jesus. Otherwise, he would have missed that. His eyes were turned back by the rooster. So when you hear the rooster, as it were, uh, turn back to Jesus and weep over your sin, uh, but then receive God's endless grace again and live as witnesses for him again. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your word again this morning and uh, the example, the powerful example it is of your faithful grace to us. We pray that you would help us to see our need of that. We would, you would help us to uh, heed your warnings as and keep our eyes on you, as, as Peter failed here for a time to do. Uh, but mostly, Lord, we, just, we thank you uh, for your faithfulness uh, and your grace that you give to us again and again when we don't deserve it. Help us to live in that. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.